the old pilot's plain tales. RAF Form 414, Volume 25. Leaving Australia and the Hornet, unhappily in my rear vision mirror, I was heading back to Blighty and a cold winter in Lincolnshire. Jilly had been the advance party, sorting out our married quarter for the duration of our stay at RAF Coningsby, but sadly there were none available for students and we were living at RAF College Cranwell, several miles away. Needless to say, we soon made the place look like home when we got our belongings out of storage and our boxes arrived from Australia. We quickly made friends with the Antipodeans serving there when they spotted the Australian Grace Brothers removal boxes stacked outside our house. 229 Operational Conversion Unit was the training unit that would give me my first taste of the mighty Finn, the Swing Wing Superjet, Mother Riley's Cardboard Aeroplane, otherwise known as the air defence variant of the Tornado. The Tornado project started life in the UK back in 1967 when I was 13 years old with an announcement by the British Minister of Defence. Waggling his bushy eyebrows, Dennis Healy stood up in Parliament and told the MPs present that although France had withdrawn from the Anglo-French Variable Geometry Aircraft Project, he was authorising the British companies BAC and Bristol Sidley to continue development. BAC had been one of the original pioneers of swing-wing aircraft and Sir Barnes Wallace at Weybridge had done more than anyone to work on the idea. Partners in the project were sought, and the founder countries of the UK, Germany and Italy were joined by the Netherlands, Belgium and Canada. However, the design priorities of the partners conflicted around basic needs like the number of crew, the navigation and weapons delivery capabilities, the stall performance and the multi-role capabilities. Although the main aircraft companies involved put forward design proposals, none appear capable of fulfilling all the partners' needs. Air staffs and governments dropped out until the six partners became three again, Britain, Germany and Italy. By 1969, the individual manufacturers had been brought together into Panavia and the aircraft became the multi-role combat aircraft. The version I was to fly was the F-3 air defence variant. Design features were fixed, and aware of the difficulties that had plagued the F-111, problems were avoided. For example, the tailplane was set well below the high wing to avoid interference, and the flat fuselage bottom was configured so it could be festooned with weapons. The wings were simplified by avoiding the need for ailerons, roll control being obtained by independent movement of the tailerons and the use of spoilers. This also allowed the use of Kruger flaps on the wing gloves and slats on the entire leading edges, plus double-slotted Fowler flaps across the full width of the trailing edges. Wing-mounted weapons pylons pivoted when the wings were swept, 
to keep them aligned with the airflow. To increase short field performance, particularly to encompass short landings, the Rolls-Royce Turbo Union RB199 engines employed bucket-style thrust reversers, and the nose-wheel steering was tied to the yaw dampers to ensure stability during thrust reverse use. The reverses could be armed whilst airborne and would activate on touchdown. This led to a couple of unfortunate incidents when pilots tried to go around whilst close to the ground with thrust reversers armed. Giving the runway a glancing blow with the nose up and full power selected, the weight on wheel switch is activated and the reversers deployed, pitching the aircraft hard down and breaking off the nose wheels. One such accident occurred while the crew were using the cassette tape system to play rock music to the crew. It was normally used to transfer data from the planning table to the navigation computer and could then be used to record aircraft audio channels. When the RAF senior command heard about that, they immediately banned such frivolous behaviour on the pain of excommunication, since rock and roll was obviously the source of all evil. So, having got themselves into a jam, the habit went underground. The wing suite was powered by the dual hydraulic system that ran at 4,000 psi, 280 bars, to cope with the additional strain of moving around large parts of the aircraft at the pilot's whim. The wings could be set at any angle between the forward limit of 25 degrees and the aft limit of 67 degrees, but the wing sweep lever had indents at the commonly recognised positions of 25, 35, 45, 58 and 67. Each of these positions had four speed limits to remember, with one having eight limits, depending if the manoeuvre flaps were deployed or not. For example, the most commonly used position of 45 degrees had a maximum normal operating limit of 550 knots or Mach 1.25 and a never exceed limit of 600 knots or Mach 1.3. However, if you deployed your manoeuvre devices, combat flaps to you and me, you had to ensure that you were below 550 knots and Mach 0.88 normal operating or 600 knots, Mach 0.92 never exceed. That wasn't all. Being a supposed fighter, one might be expected to roll the aircraft hard in combat or as the limitations page explained, rapid rolling or moderate rolling. Various notes are scattered around the flight reference cards, such as with full or part full fin fuel, normal acceleration must be between plus 0.5 g to plus 3.5 g normal operating, or 0 to plus 4 g never exceed, and rapid or moderate rolling is forbidden. With that in mind, the normal rolling limits were different for 25, 45 and 67 wing, and as an example, for 45 degree wing, with or without manoeuvre devices, the minimum speed was 250 knots and the maximum speed 550 or Mach 0.88, 
maximum altitude 40,000 feet, maximum angle of attack 14 units for rapid and 17 units for moderate rolling, and had an entry limit for a 360-degree moderate roll or a 180-degree rapid roll of 0 to plus 3G, or for a rapid 360 roll, 0 to plus 2G. <sighs> the G limitations continued, with normal operating limits for five different aircraft weights and three different bands of wing positions. So at, say, 23 tonnes, they would be plus 3.8, 4.8 or 4.0, but when you burned your fuel down to 17 tonnes, they increased to plus 5.2, 6.2 or 5.5 g, bearing in mind there was an entirely different set of figures for your never-exceed limit. All of the aforementioned garbage to steal a term used for describing no terms, was for one out of three aircraft configurations, and for each one, the numbers changed. As I sat at home every evening, in front of my newly issued cardboard cockpit doing my homework, I couldn't stop myself from thinking back to the untroubled, carefree handling of the Hornet, and wondered just how on earth they had managed to complicate the tornado so much. Unlike most sensible variable geometry aircraft, the tornado's wing sweep was manually selected. British Aerospace had developed an automatic wing sweep system, but it was never cleared for use while I flew it, so we couldn't turn it on. The rumour was that because we flew on the cusp of a transition speed, the wings tended to hunt back and forth whilst air-to-air refuelling, which made life rather tricky. Why we couldn't just turn it off for tanking was never satisfactorily explained to me, and had we been cleared to use it, the RAF might well have saved an airframe from destruction and a pilot from a most unfortunate death. As I heard the story, he was fighting some F-16s and wisely decided not to stay and engage them since they had about double the F-3's rate of turn. He therefore employed our usual tactic, which was to fly a minimum separation close aboard pass and run as fast as he could, hoping to get beyond missile range before they could turn around. This pilot did exactly that, and in full burner, he banged his wings all the way back as he headed down the hill, bravely running away. Staring over his shoulder and watching the F-16s turn into little balls of vapour as they span around, it was his navigator who realised they were fast running out of height and warned him of the approaching sea. He pulled hard and the nose came up, giving the impression that they'd levelled, but in 67 wing, Looking like a paper dart, the wings never produced much lift, and the aircraft continued to descend until they gave the sea a glancing blow. As the aircraft disintegrated, the pilot died, but his navigator survived to tell the tale. Had automatic wing sweep been cleared for use, the chances are that the wing scheduling would have put the wings into a more suitable position for their speed, where they would have had the lift needed to safely stop the descent. 
Powering the Mighty Fin, uh, the common nickname since the tornado had a single massive fin rather than a pair of smaller ones, were two Turbo Union RB199-34Rs, a three-spool turbofan with increased performance over the ground attack version, but they still only produced a measly 9,000 pounds, 40 kilonewtons of dry thrust. 2,000 pounds, about 9 kilonewtons, nearly 25%, less than the F-18. What's more, that thrust bled off dramatically with altitude. I had seen a practical demonstration of this whilst flying the Hornet on exercise Lima Basatu in Malaysia. It was an exercise of a joint defence pact between the five nations of Australia, New Zealand, Malaysia, Singapore and the United Kingdom. We had been down at the southern tip of the Malay Peninsula and at Endex we turned ahead back to Butterworth. Mukai and I climbed our F-18s up to 50,000 to get over the massive late afternoon thunderstorms that had built up over the jungle below and listened with interest to the F-3 tornadoes that had been operating adjacent to us as they cruised at about half our height and tried to get around the massive thunderheads below. They turned this way and that, through the growing maze of ugly clouds, unable to climb and cruise higher, until their controller warned them that they were about to leave the country and entered Thailand. The designers of the tornado had, however, put some clever ideas into the aircraft and not just the thrust reversers. One of these was the cross-drive clutch. The idea was that following an engine failure, the clutch would close automatically to allow the operation of both engine gearboxes from the single remaining engine. This meant that you could recover the hydraulic and electric systems that would otherwise be lost. It was a great idea, except that it wasn't supposed to be left in auto above 20,000 feet or so because if an engine failed above that height and the cross-drive closed, it could drag the good engine down with it and cause it to fail as well. So if you were being conscientious, you were forever flicking the switch back and forth every time you transitioned through the height limit. The cross-drive clutch also had a habit of catching fire when used for too long. Well, you can't have everything. The F-3 had a pretty massive panel of warning lights, which sported 39 amber cautions and 33 red ones. So with the biggest emergency checklist I'd ever flown with, the simulator rides could be a voyage of discovery. However, with half a dozen of those done and dusted, it was time to take this new thing airborne. As with all new aircraft, the first few trips were a combination of fascination as to how it would perform along with the mental overload that usually happens when trying to apply everything learned in the classroom and the simulator to the real world. Firstly, the aircraft was incredibly easy to fly. Its handling qualities reminded me of the Hawk Trainer, a viceless and well-harmonized aircraft that was both responsive but could be flown very accurately. The tornado was quick. Indeed, it could go very fast indeed, and it was beautifully stable, even when creaming along 
at over six or seven hundred knots just over the waves. It wasn't, however, very manoeuvrable. It was possible to bash through some decent aerobatics, but looping manoeuvres were large and lazy, so I had my doubts about its performance in combat. It also lost energy quickly, particularly up at medium or high levels, so it was best to enter any hard turns with plenty of smash on. The Tornado was a docile aircraft in the circuit, and as we taxied in I was feeling pretty content. As we came up to our parking position, my backseat pilot was very quick to remind me, however, of one of the aircraft's unusual foibles. Whatever you do, he said, make sure you let the engines run all the way down before you put the battery on. The result of thoughtlessly flicking the batteries off and climbing out was, as had happened several times, a loud roar that soon became a deafening screech, as without power to the DECQ, the digital engine control unit, the engine had a habit of relighting and immediately accelerating to an uncontrolled 108%, whereupon its core disintegrated, spraying a nasty cloud of white-hot debris and chewed-up blades out of the back. I kid you not, and with the OCU having a preponderance of young brand new Tornado pilots, they saw this happen more than most units. Three flights into the course and my backseater was now a navigator and not another pilot, and after a quick instrument rating, I was off with a fellow student navigator in the back. Hoping to have some fun together, our plans were dashed when we got a couple of engine warnings. We got an amber reheat warning for an engine combined with a red thrust reverser unlocked caption. The reheat failure wasn't really a problem, but a reverser deployment in flight could be a nasty situation, particularly on finals, so it required a precautionary single engine approach and landing. And that was my welcome to the fabled F3 Tornado. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find out all about that fantastic podcast at airlinepilotguy.com. And as you probably know, Plane Tales is also a standalone podcast. And if you're interested in helping us out, how about leaving us a nice review on your podcatcher of choice? Many thanks for listening. <laughs>